Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, we'll be looking at uh, uh, Cool Air. Cool Air is the third of three New York stories that, that Lovecraft wrote. Uh, the first two, he and uh, the horror at Red Hook, we've already examined. And this is maybe the smallest in scale and scope of any of these these stories. It actually feels a bit like a throwback. It you know it feels like a, you're reading a story like uh, from earlier in Lovecraft's career, like The Music of Eric Zahn, or or something like that, um, or The Statement of Randolph Carter. It is more poesque in in tone, um, and this might actually be. You know, a bit on purpose. It, it seems to have been influenced by the facts of Monsieur uh, Valdemar by Poe. It is, it is one of the more poest stories of Lovecraft's later career. Uh, it was written in February 1926, um, and it first appeared in Tales of Magic and Mystery in March of 1928. It later appeared in Weird Tales in September 1939, after it was rejected by Weird Tales um, a month after it was written. Um, now that reprint is part of when Weird Tales was reprinting a lot of Lovecraft's work after he, he died. So the two previous New York stories, uh, The Whore at Red Hook and He, both look at immigration and, and race. Uh, maybe Whore at Red Hook most, in most detail and most explicitly. Um, he looks at it in more of a cosmic way. He's looking at more of the history of New York and architecture and time travel, both kind of the informal time travel of just walking tours of cities with ancient, with ancient roots. Uh, and then we finally get to a real time travel story, at least a, a, of a window that allows one to look at different times. Um, and then we're told at the end of he that old New York is dead for good and it's basically can't be restored, symbolized by the by the evaporation of the body of, of the man, he, the titular he. Uh, the Horror at Red Hook, uh, much uh, different story, longer, more um, digging deeper into the re current reality of New York, which is in Lovecraft's mind, awash with immigrants of dubious uh, morality, uh, all involved in cults and weird traditions brought in from, from abroad. Cool Air combines some of these themes, but it's the smallest of the stories by far. It's just dealing with one guy who moves into an apartment and meets the guy who lives upstairs, who's also an immigrant. In fact, this is it's kind of like the kind of place that Lovecraft lived in, where there seemed to have been a lot of immigrants. If you read his letters, you know, he often talked about the immigrant neighbors he had. Um, you know, so that's the kind of place this character is, is li living in. And then... He finds out there's this guy living upstairs and he's connected to some traditions, but they're not occult traditions so much, although they're, they're suggestive of some occult things. Primarily, it's medical traditions. And he's more like a he's like a mad scientist, essentially, living upstairs who has a, a, a secret. And his secret is that he's able to use his will and uh, cold air and coolness to preserve his body. But he's basically able to use will to stay alive. I think the. The coolness is more like a preservative, I think, for, for the body. Um, then, but it's actually Will that's keeping him alive. Um, but uh, we see this character's decline as that begins to break down. But it, it's a story about immortality. Um, a bit like, in the sense, a case of Charles Dexter Ward, where you have like a younger sort of apprentice who plays a key role in sustaining the life of this person. Uh, very different 
device for doing that, of course, but um, both uh, deal with transatlantic traditions. Uh, this one very explicitly, we see he's getting a lot of his ideas and a lot of his network and relations are the people we know, the people we talk to about these practices that allow him to stay alive are in Europe. So there's a transatlantic connection in this story as well. So uh, with that uh, background out of the way, let's jump into this very uh, interesting short little story. I'm, I'm going to try not to talk longer than the, the, than the length of the story itself. Let's, let's see if I can do it. Um, the audiobook for this is it's about uh, 24 or 4 minutes. Uh, so our, our narrator uh, introduces himself as someone who's afraid of the cold, and then we learn why he's afraid of the cold over the course of the, of the novel. Um, this is, uh, this is actually the next story in the vault has that same sort of device where we're introduced. That's not told in the first person, but we're told uh, there's, there's this reason why this character started acting weird and being afraid of tombs. And then he goes on to explain uh, in kind of flashback. So he starts out just explaining why he's afraid of, of, of cool air, of coldness. Um, and then we jump to him in the city and Lovecraft can't resist talking about New York in horrific terms. So his image of New York is as a horror. Quote, I found it in the glare of mid-afternoon, in the clangor of the metropolis, and in the teeming midst of a shabby and commonplace rooming house with a prosaic landlady and two stalwart men by my side. Um, so there's not as much. He doesn't lay it on as thick as he does in the horror at Red Hook. Maybe because it was written a little later, he's a little bit more mature maybe on his reaction to New York. But it's still here. This is still a story about immigrants and an immigrant neighborhood. So anyways, he goes looking, he's looking for a place to live. He's, doing, he's working as a writer for a, a magazine in New York City. And he needs a cheap apartment. Can't find one that's, that's uh, any good. It's a real realistic, commonplace frustration. He eventually finds one that quote, disgusted me less than others. So it's not a good place. It's not the kind of place he would like to live in, but it's the best he can find in New York City. Um, and then this place, it's, it's interesting that this is kind of drawn from real history is like when you look at like the early 20th century, late 19th century, as New York became a more industrial city and you had all these immigrants and a lot more growing population and growing size, a lot of the old mansions in New York were cut up into apartment houses, right? And a lot of like the tenement buildings were once much larger uh, mansions that just got sort of cut up and rented out. Uh, this is the case here. Quote, the place was a four-story mansion of brownstone dating apparently from the late 40s and fitted with woodwork and marble whose stained and sullied splendor argued a descent from high levels of tasteful opulence. Um, but this happened a lot. This was a, a way of dealing with the uh, need for housing at the time. And I think a lot of the rich people who owned these mansions, they, they kind of moved out more to, to the boroughs as, as New York expanded, became more industrial. Um, so then we meet some of the neighbors. Uh, basically, we have a handful of them. Um, Herrero is the landlady. Um, she, you know, she, she's, there's her, there's her son. Um, who is the main person. His, her son's named Esteban. So they're of Spanish descent. In fact, um, most of the characters we run to here are of Spanish descent. Um, those are the first two people he meets. <clears throat> then he goes to, well, he's in his apartment and there's this dripping from the ceiling of ammonium. 
like this morning is dripping from the ceiling and of course that really smells weird and it's kind of creepy what's going on so he goes to talk to Herrero and Herrero says oh that's Dr. Munez Munoz Dr. Munoz always has these weird chemicals and maybe his pump broke down or it fell he's always working late and doing weird stuff but you know that's him he's he's an old famous doctor from Barcelona uh, and he's not a bad person she even says he helped fix the arm of a of the plumber who who hurt it um now that's a little to what degree they fixed it is a question because later on we learn he he has some quasi magical abilities to cure you know it's and that's all tied to will he's able to use will and get people to project their will to cure bodily injury and in Munoz's own case is to stay alive uh, in our narrator's case, it's to cure a heart condition, a, a, a permanent heart condition. So this question of how he fixed the arm of the plumber, was it just he splinted it or did he actually repair it using this kind of willpower idea? I'm not sure. I'm guessing the latter. Um, at least that's the, you know, what seems to be the, the consistency, if we want the story to be consistent. Um, anyways, Mr. Rare goes upstairs and comes back and basically the ammonia stops dripping. Um, now, it's at this time that we, well, first, um, this character, this narrator, feels he's in a state of decline because he's here with, in this apartment. He writes, there is, I reflected tritely, an infinite deal of pathos in the state of an imminent person who has come down in the world, right? now. That's well, that's kind of referring to Munoz, I think, too, who was once famous and is now, you know, in decline. I, I think it might also suggest the narrator or Lovecraft himself, his own anxiety about being in New York, this feeling of decline about that. But anyways, the next thing that happens in the story is our narrator has his his heart attack and he survives it. But he's this is what gets him introduced to Dr. Munoz. So he goes to Munoz for help for his heart attack. And he enters the apartment and he sees this very vast laboratory and library, uh, which is out of place for an apartment in this neighborhood and of this, you know, in this class environment. So uh, the narrator takes away from this that Munoz is a man of, quote, birth, cultivation and discrimination. And then we get his physical description and he's a Spanish descent, but he's got like this, these Moorish Arab features added to that. He seems to have these mixed features. So he's a, he's a bit of a, he's got this mixed background. It even says he's got the Celtiberian um, physiognomy, which is the, I guess the, that's the, I don't want to say the indigenous people of Spain, but the people before like the Latins came in, I guess, before the, you know, before the Roman empire. Uh, um, you know, the Celts dominated all of Western Europe before, before the Roman empire. So here's a description. A high-bred face of masterful, though not arrogant, expression was adorned by a short, iron-gray, full beard and an old-fashioned uh, princeness shielded, that's a, a glasses, um, shielded the full dark eyes and surmounted the aquiline nose, which gave a Moorish touch to a phys physiognomy, otherwise dominantly Celtiberian. Thick, well-trimmed hair that argued the punctual calls of a barber or partially graced above a high forehead. And the whole picture was one of striking intelligence and superior blood and breeding, end quote. Notice with me, Lovecraft just can't resist 
bringing up race and talking about things in racial terms. He does it all the time. He uses this racial language at the time that is not only off-putting to people of our own time, but even confusing, right? Like, I don't know if you can imagine someone of Celtiberian features, if that's like common in your like mental lexicon. Someone asked me like, that guy looks Celtiberian. I wouldn't know what that even means. I guess I have a sense of some of these racial features as they're described in the late 19th, early 20th century. But um, sometimes they get really detailed here. But anyways, um, the other thing we learn about this apartment, of course, is this coldness. And as coldness is described in quite a lot of detail, right? And what we learn, and, and there's a couple pages here where we get Munoz's backstory. Now, we know he has an intense fear of death. He's kind of, quote, quote swore, he's the sworn enemy of death. That's uh, the way it's put here. Um, and he explains his theories and experiments that allow him to stay alive. Essentially, what he's able to do is, is use his willpower um, to stay alive. But I think that has to accompany the, the coldness because he's dead. <laughs> he's already died. That's the punchline of the story. The, the big scare at the end is that he's already been dead for quite a while. But he's able to animate himself through his force of will alone. And then the coldness is just a matter of keeping his body somewhat intact, I guess. Because, you know, he's, I guess, still physically decaying. Um, he has his own illnesses, too. Um, that Now, he kind of says, like, I have these illnesses and the cold temperature allows me to, to um, avoid those or whatever. Um, but he teaches these some of these methods to our narrator. And in fact, the narrator is cured of his diseased heart, uh, apparently, um, at least in his mind. And the methods are some kind of mixture of psychology and foreign magic, which he gets from kind of European sources. He gets some stuff from East Indies sources, too. Um, but there's also kind of this this focus on the psychology and the will things but there's a lot of magic underneath it all um, and now he mentions a great illness of 18 years ago that started and that, that date is going to be important this is Munoz's illness of 18 years before that's going to be important because we're going to learn later on that that's the date that he died um, he also has a bunch of strange interests that are explained this is one of the more interesting parts of the story where he's kind of piecing together where he gets the stuff from he has for instance a great interest in mummification which, of course, is all about preserving bodies. So he's learning some of his stuff about preservation, coldness, uh, the use of ammonia from there. He's got technological knowledge that's quite sophisticated because he has these elaborate... He's basically turned his apartment into a refrigerator using ammonium and various um, various uh, salt. He basically creates his whole apartment into a, a ammonium-based uh, refrigerator using ammonium and, I guess, sodium sulfate and the different salts and things that, that allow him to keep the temperature lower than, uh, lower than usual. Right? Basically, early refrigeration, but he turns his whole apartment into that. And that's why the ammonium was leaking before, because the pump was going bad. And that's a bit foreshadowing that this pump might be beginning to have pro some problems. So he's got this kind of occult knowledge, this historical knowledge, and he's got this technology, and it's all sort of mixed together really well in this story, I think. Um, now, it, uh, what's that? Esteban, the son of Herrero, doesn't want anything to do with this weirdo Munez. So when this narrator gets interested in Munez and starts to become his assistant, um, 
Esteban just doesn't want anything to do with Munoz anymore. He says, okay, you can have him. <laughs> He's a weirdo. And he sort of, be- and the narrator sort of becomes Munoz's aide and helper. And he starts kind of helping maintain this equipment and getting the chemicals from all the different druggists and all that. Um, now, there's a great line here as Herrero, um, even Herrero passes care for Munoz to the narrator. She even passes it to that. But there's this great line here that really sums up, I think, this methodology of, our, of, of Dr. Munoz. Quote, when I suggested other physicians, the sufferer would fly into as much a rage as seemed to dare to entertain. He evidently feared the physical effect of violent emotion, yet his will and driving force waxed rather than waned, and he refused to be confined to his bed. The lassitudes of his earlier ill days gave place to a return to his fiery purpose, so that he seemed about to hurl defiance at the death demons, even as that ancient enemy seized him. End quote. The ancient enemy being death. Um, but... He has to, the suggestion here is he has to invest over time, increasing levels of his own willpower uh, to sustain his, his status. Now, the narrator doesn't yet know he's dead. Um, well, he does when he's writing this, but he, in this point of the story, he doesn't yet know that Munoz is a corpse, is a walking corpse. But uh, somehow to keep alive, he has to keep expanding his will, um, you know. Now, he's in contact, Munoz is in contact with other researchers, particularly lettered East Indians. Um, a once celebrated French physician, now thought, now generally thought dead, who's still writing. So someone else is doing this same method in France and staying alive as well. Um, now, like, but this all really freaks out people. We saw how Esteban and Herrero don't want anything to do with this. It's just that the narrator's a bit off his... He's a bit weird, too, because everyone else who gets close to Munoz is freaked out by this and doesn't want anything to do with it. For instance, uh, one man comes to just fix the pump or no, fix, fix the lights. And then he like has a panic attack seeing this place. And this guy had been through World War One, uh, as we're told. But he doesn't want anything to do with Munoz um, and, the, and his creepy little assistant. So the climax of the story comes when the pump breaks down. The pump breaks down uh, one day in, uh, in October. And it's going to take a while to repair. He's going to have to get the part and get someone who knows how to repair it. So it, it's like crisis time and he needs ice. He needs ice and the pump. So there's like these two tasks. He can only do one of them. He can keep going to the store getting ice or he can go to get the pump and fix it. But Munoz demands both. So he goes to Esteban and says, dude, you got to help me. Remember that weirdo Munez you were helping? Well, he needs your help now. And Esteban says, no way. I don't want anything to do with this guy anymore. So he finds a loafer, a, a quote, a seedy looking loafer, which apparently there are a lot of in New York in, in Lovecraft's mind. Uh, he says, okay, you keep bringing ice to the house and I'm going to go find this someone to repair the pump. Um, and... You know, he finally finds someone. It takes a long time to do that. He finally finds someone. But he goes back and he finds the the loafer uh, had fled. He'd fled the scene. Quote, he had, the, lo- the lounger I had hired, it seems, had fled screaming and mad-eyed not long after a second delivery of ice. So he only made two trips. And he also freaked out. So everyone else who encountered Munoz, except our narrator, you know, was freaked out by what he saw. Uh this guy's the only one who can s- handle this guy, which suggests this guy is, he's a bit weird in the head too. Um, 
Or maybe he's even weirder than Munoz. You understand, Munoz wanting to stay alive, I guess. But to someone who wants to be around this and learn more about it, it's a bit bizarre. Um, but anyways, the lounger bailed almost immediately. Um, and and anyways, now things are bad because it's warming up and Munoz begins to cane. And, and actually, by the time he gets back, Munoz is already dead. All that's left are the remains of him. Um, and we get a... A brief description of the body. Oh no, we don't. We don't get a description of the body. Instead, we get a description of the what he did in his last moments. Uh, this was a typical old-fashioned Lovecraftian uh, device. Quote: What was or had been on the couch? I cannot and dare not say here. He says, I can't tell you what was there. It's too horrific to see. Um, but what we do get is a description that, that Munoz stretched out the note in his last moments. Uh, kind of like in Dagon, the guy writing the story out in those last moments. Um, Lovecraft doesn't have the narrator do it because that's so awkward as it is in Dagon. But here it's, it makes more sense, I guess. He's trying to pass on his last wisdom to his student. And he says, oh, you know, no more ice. The man looked and ran away. Warm every minute and the tissues can't last. I fancy you know what I said about the will and nerves and the preserved body after the organs ceased to work. It was a good theory, but it couldn't keep up indefinitely. There was a gradual deterioration I had not foreseen. Dr. Torres knew, but the shock killed him. He couldn't stand what he had to do. He had to get me in a strange dark place where he minded my letter and nursed me back, and the organs never would work again. It had to be done my way, artificial preservation. For you see, I died that time 18 years ago. And that's the, the, the end of the story. So um, that's it. So the last of Lovecraft's explicitly New York tales. Um, I like it. I, this was actually one of the first Lovecraft stories I ever read um, uh, when I kind of returned to reading Lovecraft seriously uh, a number of years ago. Um, it's one of the first in the Library of America anthology of Lovecraft's writings. That, that anthology is very heavy on the later stuff, as is the first Klinger anthology. Um, I do I do like this second Klinger anthology because it does go get a lot of his earlier works and mo yeah, pretty much most of his earlier works that weren't included in that first anthology. And that's where you'll find uh, a good edition of Cool Air with some nice notes that give you a lot of useful background. So a lot here on traditions, on networks of knowledge, which is a, on a recurring theme, a little bit on race. We got the kind of anti-immigrant backdrop here, but not quite as thick as in the horror at Red Hook. Um, that's, um, but I think it's, these three stories go well together. I think they, they can be read together to get a nice uh, glimpse at what Lovecraft thought of, of New York. Cosmically, uh, about his, like its historical place, about its current status, um, and, and just about the weird kind of people you run into. In, I mean, maybe that's the best thing about Cool Air. It's just about the weird people you run into. If you, uh, if you have a curious, sensitive, open mind in, your, in New York. So that's going to be it for now. Uh, let me know what you thought of Cool Air. Is there anything I missed? Uh, anything I should talk about? That, um, is there any interpretation that is worth uh, adding to what I've been saying about it? Let me know. Send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. So next, we will be looking at uh, In the Vault, which was written for an amateur journal. Uh, it's kind of a joke. It's basically a joke. It's a funny story. It's kind of gruesome. Um, and, and it's kind of dark humor, I guess. But it's kind of a humorous little story. 
Um, maybe it's Lovecraft making fun of his own device, maybe making fun of kind of the, the Poe-esque uh, narration style that he, he copied for so long. Um, but I like it. It's a fun little story. So that's what we'll be looking at next uh, in the vault. So I hope you'll join me then and not be too, uh, hopefully you're not too frightened by the thought of dead bodies. Um, but if, if, if you are, you may want to stay away, but hopefully you'll be joining me next time as I look at In the Vault. See you then. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.